Welcome back. In this episode of Crime Nerds is brought to you by The Office. Just kidding. The Office has been the sponsor of my life for the last few months, and I'm about to get sued by NBC five seconds and a home. So today's case is one that led investigators down several theories, from serial killers to satanic cults. In the end, the answer was much closer than anyone realized. I'm your host, Coy, and this is the story of Arliss Perry. On June 28, 2018, investigators knocked on the door to an apartment announcing themselves. With a search warrant in hand, the person inside replied, saying that he would be there in just a minute. The investigators knew that he was stalling, and they were prepared for it. Before going up to the apartment, they already had a key from the property manager. They slid the key into the door, slowly unlocking it. They opened the door and stepped into the apartment to see the man standing there, with a gun. What led police to that apartment on June 28, 2018 was the result of a 43-year investigation. Arliss Dekima grew up in Bismarck, North Dakota. After high school, she married her high school sweetheart, Bruce Perry, and in August of 1974, at 19 years old, she and Bruce moved to Stanford, California where he was a sophomore pre-med student and she took a job as a receptionist at a law firm. As most parents would be, they were a little hesitant on this. They felt that she was too young to get married, and also a move to California seemed far away. On October 12, 1974, around 11.30 at night, Arliss and Bruce were walking on the Stanford campus. We all know that arguing over minor things is nothing new in relationships, and that seemed to be the case here as they got into an argument over the car's tire pressure, which was reported in the book The Ultimate Evil by Mari Terry. After their argument, Arla said that she just needed some space and wanted to go to the memorial church to pray. So they went their separate ways for the night. Around three in the morning, Bruce was growing more and more worried as Arliss didn't come home yet. He ended up calling the Stanford police and reported her missing. The police went to check for her around the memorial church but as they walked around, they found that all the doors were locked and there were no signs of anyone around. Around 5.45 in the morning on October 13th, campus security guard Stephen Crawford opened up the church so that staff could go in and begin to prepare for morning services. Once he opened the doors and began to walk through the church, he was met with a gruesome scene. 19-year-old Arliss was found murdered inside the church near the altar. She was found face up with her hands folded across her chest and an ice pick sticking out of the back of her head. With signs of strangulation around her neck, Arliss's clothes were removed from the waist down and a candlestick was used to sexually assault her. Another candlestick was placed on her chest and her jeans were constructed in a diamond shaped and placed across her legs. Investigators started with interviewing Stephen Crawford, 
he told police that he locked the church up a little after midnight, and at that time he didn't notice anyone inside the church. He said that around 2 in the morning he was doing his rounds and checked on the church again. This time he was checking the church just from the outside and found that all the doors were still locked. He said that when he went back to open the church up that morning, he found that the door on the west side of the building had been forced open, but it had been forced open from the inside. Investigators learned that there were seven people in the church the night that Arliss went in there. Arliss, Stephen, and five others who were praying. Of the five others, four were identified. There was one that was never identified. He was described by several of the people as a young man entering the church around midnight. He had sandy-colored hair, medium build, and he was about five foot ten. As far as forensics on scene, they found semen on a pillow near Arliss's body, and they collected a partial palm print on one of the candlesticks. At the time, DNA testing was not what it is today, and they were unable to match it to anyone. As I'm sure you all expected, one of the first suspects, if not the very first, was Arliss's husband, Bruce. Bruce completely cooperated with the investigation, doing interviews, polygraphs, providing DNA samples, and finger and palm prints. Investigators were quickly able to rule him out. As Bruce was ruled out as a suspect, other theories began to come to light to include a satanic cult. But even more alarming information was that this was not the first murder similar to this in the area. In 1973 and early 1974, two other women in the Stanford area were found murdered and sexually assaulted, and their killer had yet to be identified. Then, just a few years later, a notorious serial killer mentioned the name Arliss Perry as he wrote about her. Over the next couple of years, two big theories came into play. The first one was trying to see if Arliss's murder was connected to two others. In March of 1974, 21-year-old Janet Taylor was found strangled to death just outside the Stanford campus. In 1973, there was another sexual assault and murder of 21-year-old female Leslie Perloy in Stanford. It would be decades before those two murders were solved, but eventually investigators were able to conclude that they were not related to Arliss. John Getru, or however you pronounce his name, he was the one arrested on those two murders, and that was just in the last couple of years. The other theory in this case was that serial killer David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, was involved. David wrote at one point, quote, Arliss Perry, hunted, stalked, and slain, followed to California, Stanford University, unquote. Now, David wrote this while he was in prison in New York. He was arrested in 1977 for his multiple murders around the New York area, there wasn't anything concrete tying him to Arliss's murder. Investigators, they traveled to New York to interview him, and they concluded that he did not have any information on the case. Year after year went by with no answers. Bruce Perry eventually became a psychiatrist, and he remarried. He's currently a senior fellow at the Child Trauma Academy in Houston, Texas. 
He spent years researching and becoming an expert in children's mental health and neurosciences. Bruce served as an expert witness and a consultant on some of the most high-profile cases in America to include the Columbine High School shooting, Oklahoma City bombing, and the Waco siege. Then in 2016, cold case investigators began working on something new with this case. They started with re-interviewing everyone. Then they let it be for just a little bit while they were working on something else. DNA technology was far more advanced than it was in 1974, and they began making national news with solving cases. Investigators obtained some discarded items from Stephen, and they sent it off to be tested for DNA. What the items were, not exactly sure, and I couldn't find where that information was released, but in the past we've seen cases where they've used cigarette butts or cans from drinking, so I'm not sure what was used here, but whatever was used, when the DNA came back, Stephen Crawford's DNA matched the DNA from the semen near Arliss's body the night of the murder. Investigators believed they had their person, but to be on the safe side, they ruled everyone else out. They tracked down everyone from the church that night except the one guy who has never been identified and they got a DNA sample, and to no surprise, no one else has matched. While that began in 2016, it took a little bit of time. It wasn't an overnight process or the first 48 hours kind of thing. And this is what led detectives to Stephen's studio apartment on June 28, 2018. The detectives approached Stephen's apartment with a search warrant and an arrest warrant for him. They knocked on the door and announced themselves. Stephen said that he needed to get dressed and several minutes passed, and in the moment for investigators, I'm sure that the several minutes felt like an eternity. They then used a key that they got from the landlord to open the door. They walked in and saw Stephen sitting on the bed with a gun in his hand. The detectives immediately backed out of the doorway to get cover, and they heard a single gunshot. They then found Stephen dead with a single gunshot wound to the head. I can only imagine how chaotic of a scene this must have been, getting so close to the killer after all of these years. Then he takes his own life right in front of you. And then to have to come together and work the scene and still have to search and process the apartment. While searching the apartment, investigators found that Stephen wrote a suicide note in 2016, right after the investigators interviewed him again. The note didn't confess to killing Arliss, but it was rambling and described as, quote, all over the place. Another interesting thing that was found was the book jacket for the book, The Ultimate Evil, which was about the son of Sam's serial killer, but it did mention Arliss in the book. And this is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned after the outro music for the debrief.
Well, thanks for sticking around. I don't have a funny criminal story for this debrief. Instead, I wanted to take the time to try and explain a few things that's been going on. You may have noticed or may not have noticed that I haven't been very consistent with the podcast over the last few years, and a lot of that had to do with my work schedule. For about the last seven years, I've been a cop. In the last year and a half, I've worked as a special victims unit detective. So I've really only been researching and writing on cases whenever I had time and didn't feel completely burnt out from work. But all of that kind of changed on March 11th. That was my last working day with the sheriff's office, and I have a few new goals now. I started Madkins Media as a media company to produce videos and podcasts. For now, I'm doing real estate media for agents, small businesses, and wedding films. The end goal, though, is to have podcasting as my full-time job to be able to produce multiple podcasts with other hosts and various genres. So we'll see what happens. All of this could fail miserably, but even if that happens, I know it'll be a great experience. And I'm looking forward to being able to have more time to make episodes for you. Again, thank you everyone for the support and the patience over the last few months. If you would like to join the Patreon group, it's $5 a month. Links is in the show notes and on social media. I have a few episodes on there that are pretty interesting, and I hope you all have a great day.